Turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 6, verse 1. One of the most powerful books I've read in in recent years is called uh, Same Kind of Different as Me. If you have not read this book, read it, okay? It'd be a great Christmas read. It's it's really hard to put down. Uh, Incredibly gripping story. Uh, It's about the very unlikely friendship between two men. Uh, The authors are Ron Hall and Denver Moore. Ron Hall was a, a wealthy art dealer. Denver Moore was a sharecropper from Louisiana. And uh, in case you've forgotten from your uh, American history lessons what sharecropping is all about, Denver actually describes it at the beginning of the book. He says this, since there ain't no sharecropping now, I'm going to tell you how it worked. The man owned the land. Then he gave you the cotton seeds and the fertilizer and the mule and some clothes and everything else you need to get through the year. Except he don't really give it to you. He let you buy it at the store on credit. But it was his store on his plantation that he owned. You plowed and planted and tended till picking time. Then at the end of the year, when you bring in the cotton, you go to the man and settle up. Supposedly, you're going to split that cotton right down the middle or maybe 60-40. But by the time the crop come in, you owe the man so much on credit, your share of the crop gets eaten up. And even if you don't think you owe that much, or even if the crop was especially good that year, the man weighs the cotton and writes down the figures... And he the only one that can read the scale or the books. So you done worked all year and the man ain't done nothing, but you still owe the man. And what nothing you could do but work his land for another year to pay off that debt. What it come down to was, the man didn't just own the land, he owned you. I worked in fields for nearly 30 years, like a slave, even though slavery had supposedly ended when my grandma was just a girl. I had a shack I didn't own, two pairs of overalls I got on credit, a hog and an outhouse. I worked in fields planting and plowing and picking and giving all the cotton to the man that owned the land, all without a paycheck. I didn't even know what a paycheck was. Uh, Denver was free thanks to the 13th Amendment to the Constitution. He was in fact free, but he lived for nearly three decades as if he were a slave. I don't You pick up the book, you read that story, and if you're like me, you say, man, I wouldn't have stayed 30 seconds, let alone 30 years. Well, that's because we have lived our entire lives as free people. That's all we have ever known, and we can't imagine, we we couldn't contemplate, we certainly wouldn't put up with someone enslaving us, because we know we're free. We've lived as free. That is, that's a part of our understanding of who we are, except when it comes to our spiritual lives. Then for so many of us as Christians, we are in fact free in Christ, but we live as if we're slaves. We live enslaved to habitual sin or we live consistently frustrating lives that do not have joy and peace and patience. And then every once in a while we run into some Christian who just kind of destroys all of our our understanding, our categories. A Christian who's living under really, really difficult, adverse circumstances, and yet still has joy and peace and patience, uh, is refusing to live focused inwardly, but instead is continually giving to others and enjoying life, even though the circumstances are difficult. And we wonder, what's the difference? When Romans chapter 6, Paul turns a corner and he's going to begin to talk to us about how we can actually practically begin to enjoy all the freedom that was purchased for us in Jesus Christ. Uh, before we get to chapter 6, though, I want to review. Uh, just in case you are new and uh, coming for the first time this semester, it happens, or maybe uh, you just haven't picked up 
on uh, what you've been hearing for the last 12 weeks. Okay, so we're going to go back through it. What's the theme of the book of Romans? Righteousness. Excellent. So most of us have got it. God is righteous. And what does that mean? It means God's perfect. God is the standard. God is right in who he is, his personality, and all that he does. God is righteous. And Paul is going to demonstrate throughout the book the righteousness of God in several areas. First, God is righteous in judgment. Paul's going to spend three chapters proving that God is right in judging mankind. Because mankind is not righteous. No matter what category of mankind you think you fit in, Paul's going to talk about each and every one of them. The immoral person, the self-righteous person, the Jew. And at the end he's going to wrap it all up and say there's none righteous, there's not even one. And so God is right when he judges man because man is sinful. Second, God is righteous in justification. He judges sin, but he's poured out all that judgment onto Jesus Christ. And so if you believe in Jesus Christ, God can place you into Christ and see you as right. It's a change of status because he has punished your sin in Christ. If you believe in that, he sees you in Christ. That's justification or God declaring believers righteous or to be in right standing through Christ. So God can be both just, that is he's punished sin, and the justifier because he's punished that sin in Jesus and he can stand in your substitute if you believe. God is just in the justifier. Now, third, he's going to move into sanctification. There's a transition in chapter 6. That is, God is making believers righteous through the power of his spirit. Now, justification and sanctification are, are two distinct ideas. Justification is a status. It's a declaration by God. It's a fact based upon the work of Christ. If you believe, God says you're in right relationship. Sanctification is our experience of progressively becoming more and more and more like Jesus Christ. Okay, so they're distinct, but they are tied to one another. You really can't completely separate them. And what Paul is going to say is justification, this fact, is the basis for sanctification or your experience. We're going to turn that corner now, moving into chapter 6. So what I want us to do is back up just a few verses. Romans chapter 5 and verse 20. The end of chapter 5, moving into chapter 6, Paul says, The law came in so that transgression would increase, or transgression would become even more obvious, because the law delineated, this is sin, and when you step over that boundary, it's obvious. And as the law came in, it provoked even more sin, as he'll talk about in chapter 7. And so sin increased. But where sin increased, grace abounded or superabounded. Grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue or abide in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Paul begins chapter 6 with a question. I'd like you to uh, make a couple of observations with me first. Uh, Notice that sin is in the singular. He doesn't talk about sins, but sin. In other words, at this point in time, Paul is not talking about particular acts of sin. He's going to get into that in chapter 6, verse 15. Right now, he's talking about sin in the singular, or he is uh, personifying sin, so to speak. Sin is an evil master or a realm in which people live. This is sin personified. He describes it in chapter 6, verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. So, 
What is the question that he's saying? In other words, Paul, why not remain under sin's mastery or in sin's domain so that we can receive even more of God's grace? Notice chapter 5, verse 20, where this question came from. The law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where sin increased, grace abounded even more. So, Paul, why not remain under sin's mastery so that we can receive even more of God's grace? Because when we were in the realm of sin, that's when God's grace superabounded. Now, apparently, this was a pretty common accusation against Paul. Uh, and the accusation took a variety of forms. It was basically this. Paul, if God's grace is given that freely, people will abuse it. It sounds too good to be true. It sounds, in fact, Paul, like you are promoting sin. Okay, remember Paul raised this issue earlier, chapter 3, verse 8, but he didn't address it in chapter 3. He's now addressing it, chapter 6. Chapter 3, he said this. Why not say, as we are slanderously reported in some claim that we say, let us do evil so that good may come. Hey, apparently, everywhere that Paul went, this was the attack. This was the knock against Paul. Paul, it's too good to be true. If grace is that free, people will abuse it. It sounds to me, in fact, Paul, like you're actually promoting sin everywhere you go. If people are given grace like that, they're going to take it for granted and they're going to abuse it. And people do, don't they? They do abuse the grace of God. Let me give you just one illustration. W.H. Oden once wrote, I like committing crimes. God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. (laughs) Wow. As a Christian, how do you react to that? Say, no, 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 that's not right. We need to protect the grace of God so that people don't abuse it. Isn't that your response? People shouldn't respond like that. How does Paul respond? Read with me again, chapter 6, verse 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Paul says, uh, may it never be. In Greek, you can't say no any stronger than this. Okay? This phrase means absolutely not. You're completely misunderstanding. Grace should not be abused. A proper response to grace is gratitude. But Paul acknowledges, he says, I, I understand your logic. I can even anticipate your logic because I've heard it so many times, but I got to tell you, it's stupid. <laughs> You're completely missing the point. It's like saying, let me get more cavities so that I can display the handiwork of my dentist. <laughs> no, no, it's logical, but it's ridiculous. You're missing the point of the grace of God. God's grace is designed to rescue us from the penalty and the power of sin. So I want you to notice, first of all, what Paul does not say in response to this ridiculous assertion. He does not say, if you abuse the grace of God, you lose the grace of God. That's not his answer. That's not his response. This is the typical Arminian response. If you abuse the grace of God, you lose your salvation. Nor does he say, if you abuse God's grace, you never had God's grace. 
You demonstrate that you were never saved in the first place. This is the typical Reformed response. Paul never says that. Paul, in fact, doesn't back away from this incredibly, absolutely free offer of the grace of God, does he? He never backs away from it. And in fact, when you and I present the gospel, if people don't say to us, man, that just sounds too good to be true. If they don't respond to our presentation of the gospel that way, then we're adding something to the gospel. Paul doesn't back away from it being free. But he says, you've misunderstood the very nature of your salvation. In fact, this is what he says. We have died to sin. May it never be, because how shall we who died to sin, fact, still remain under the dominion of sin? Notice what Paul does not say. He does not say, Sin is dead to the Christian. That would mean sin wasn't tempting or alluring at all to us. He doesn't say that. What he says is the Christian is dead to sin. Or in other words, sin's domination of our lives is both unnecessary and it is destructive. Why would you bother to stay under the dominion of sin when it is not necessary And it destroys your life. And that's what he's going to unpack in the rest of chapter 6. Let me illustrate. Um, Earlier this semester, I went to a fundraiser. And uh, I walked in the fundraiser and was walking down the hallway. And uh, I looked across the crowd and I saw this gentleman. He looked really, really familiar. You know how that happens? I'm just racking my brain. Who's that guy? Who's that guy? Who's that guy? Then it dawned on me. Uh, It was one of my my first bosses when I worked at Kmart. You've heard some of my Kmart stories before, right? I saw that guy. I go, yeah. That, that's one of my bosses. That, that's the guy. So I went over there and I said, I, th- I think, you know, are, are you so-and-so and you used to manage over at Kimmer? He goes, yeah, yeah. Well, he's a pastor now. Uh, and Brian, you know, we had this great conversation. He's dressed in this really nice suit. It's part why I didn't recognize him at first. We began to chat and catch up. Really wonderful conversation. Great reunion. Now, I want you to imagine for just a minute, we're in the middle of that conversation. He turns to me and says, Brian, you know, I just walked through the banquet hall and I noticed someone spilled their meal. I want you to go get the mop and clean it up. Because that's what he used to say to me, that kind of thing, right? And I would go, yes, sir. And I'd go and I'd clean it up. I was 16. I was the low man. I just, whatever. Yep, go do it. Imagine that he said that to me at the banquet. He's dressed up. I'm dressed up. Go get the mop. Clean it up. Would I have to obey him? Could I have obeyed him? I could have. Should I have obeyed him? Well, you might argue, yeah, you know, be a servant leader and go, you know, to demonstrate your humility, clean, right? Maybe. But did I have to obey him? No. Because our relationship was severed, okay, as boss to worker. There was no necessary obligation for me to obey. Now, it didn't happen, but it, as if it had happened, you know, it's just an illustration. I don't have to obey. That's what Paul is saying when he says, you are dead to sin. Not sin is dead to you. But you are dead to sin. Since domination of your life is not necessary, nor is it beneficial. In fact, it's destructive. And then verses 3 through 10, he's going to explain what does he mean more fully by dead to sin. So read with me, beginning in chapter 6, verse 3. Paul says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. 
For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, when Paul's readers heard him say, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? What came into their minds, do you imagine? That came into their minds. Okay, they hear baptism and they think water, right? It's natural. They think water. Baptism into Christ, they think water. So, Brian, are you now saying that baptism is necessary? Did these young ladies actually just get saved this very moment? Is it, you know, when they went down maybe or when they came back up? Is, is that the moment of salvation? It's not what I'm saying at all, okay? Let me give you just one verse to illustrate. 1 Corinthians 1.17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but he did send me to preach the gospel. In other words, water baptism, Paul says, is not a part of the gospel message. The gospel message is this. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, eternally existent, took on human flesh so that he could come to earth, die on our behalf, be buried, and raised from the dead. And if you believe in him, you have eternal life. That's it. And it's that simple. It's that gracious and it's that free. If you believe you have eternal life and you don't have to get baptized in order to be saved. Okay? It's not what I'm saying. But in Paul's day, this experience of water baptism happened almost immediately after a person believed. So Paul can talk about the symbol of baptism and in their minds they associate completely this symbol of baptism with their conversion of experience. Of moving out of death into life of disbelieving in Jesus Christ to believing in Jesus Christ, and the symbol and the reality for them are are closely tied together. Let me illustrate for you. Acts chapter 5. Philip opened his mouth and he began, uh, beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him, that is to the Ethiopian eunuch. As they went along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. Right there. So Philip could talk to the eunuch 30 years later and say, when you were baptized into Christ Jesus, and he would think of that physical experience and associate with it the reality of what happened to him spiritually. See, there are two baptisms in the New Testament. There's spiritual baptism and physical baptism. And physical is a symbol of, of the spiritual. And in Paul's day, they weren't separated because there wasn't this long waiting period often that we experience. So you could refer to one and the people would, and people would think of both. Okay? One more illustration, Acts chapter 10. Of him, that is of Jesus. This is Peter preaching now to Cornelius and Cornelius' household. It says, of Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin. What, what do you need to do? You need to believe. Okay. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit interrupted Peter's sermon and fell upon all those who were listening to the message. Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we did, Kenny. And immediately they got baptized. Now, let me unpack for you a little bit of what's happening here. Peter preaches the gospel to these people, these Gentiles. And in the middle of his message, the Holy Spirit falls upon them. Okay, that is spiritual baptism. The Spirit takes them and puts them into Christ, identifies them with Christ. That is the sign of the new covenant. 
That is proof that they have believed and that they possess eternal life through the new covenant, which is the blood of Jesus Christ. And Peter says, well, of course, then we must allow them the water baptism, which is the sign or the symbol of what has already transpired for them spiritually. Okay. So the two were linked completely together. Uh, Another illustration for you. Uh, Just picture in your mind this morning, you walked in and and I said, church is canceled. Instead, we're going to have a wedding. Somebody came in this morning, they want to get married, they've got a wedding license, so we're just canceling all the church, and Tim's going to play a few songs, and we're going to do a wedding here, right? Bride and the groom come down, father gives the bride away, they step up here, and, uh, you know, and then the, the pastor gives them a sh- short message, hopefully, you know, real short, and kind of gets to the point so we can get on, because there's, actually, we're going to have a reception, and cake, and punch, and all that, so he gets through all that, and then uh, we do our vows, turn to the groom, you know. I so-and-so take you so-and-so to be my wife, yada, yada, blah, blah, blah. Sure, I do. Okay. And then the bride, I so-and-so take you so-and-so to be my husband. Yes, I do. Sure, sure, I do. And then at that point in time, uh, the groom says, you know, let's stop right here because I, I, don't, I don't want to exchange rings. I don't, I, don't, I don't really want, I don't want to wear the symbol. I mean, I want to be married and we are married because you preached and we gave vows and we're going to go on our honeymoon. I, I, I want to be married. I just don't want to exchange rings. What happened? Well, he'd pay for that, obviously, the rest of his life with his mother-in-law. <laughs> Bad idea. It would never happen, would it? It would never happen. The groom wouldn't say, no, I, refuse. I want to be married, but I refuse to take on the symbol. If I'm willing to take on the reality, sure, I'll wear the, the symbol of that reality. Right? Baptism, it's like the symbol. It's like the ring. If you ask me, Brian, are you married? I can say, Sure, right? This ring is not marriage, right? And this ring doesn't make me married. What's important about me is that I am married to my wife, Tristy Fisher. And if you see this on my finger and you know me, you are reminded and I am reminded that I am married because this is the symbol. That is the symbol of the reality. And so Paul starts with the symbol and he moves them to the significance of that symbol, Look with me in chapter 6, verse 5. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. What is the significance? Paul says the significance is to be united with or to be identified with. The word is a horticultural word and it means to grow together with. This imagery is also contained within the word baptism itself. Uh, to, bapti- to baptize means literally to immerse. So if a ship uh, would sink, it would be immersed or baptized into the water. And early Christians took this image of uh, the ship going down into the water. It was identified with the sea now. Or of a cloth that was taken and it was submerged into the dye. And when it came up, it bore the image of the dye. It had become identified forever with the dye. And so Christians grabbed a hold of this image and said, this is... For us, the significance of baptism, it is to be identified with. Identification with. Now, what Paul has been talking about in Romans 5, and now moving into Romans 6, is two realms. There's the realm of Adam and there's the realm of Christ. And every person is in one of two realms. Within the realm of Adam, we have sin, death, slavery, and as you'll talk about in chapter 7, the law. 
The other realm is the realm of Jesus Christ. It's a realm of grace, life, freedom, and the spirit. This is the realm of unrighteousness, not being right with God. This is the realm of righteousness or being right with God. And every person is in one of two realms. And if I can uh, show you how Paul summarizes Romans chapter 6 in one verse, he says in Colossians, for he rescued us from the domain or the dominion, the realm of darkness, and he transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Paul says, this is just a fact about you. Know it. Whether it feels true or not at this moment, when you believe you are transferred out of the realm of Adam into the realm of Christ. That is the significance of being identified with Christ first in his death. Identified with Christ in his death. Look with me, chapter 6 and verse 6. Paul says, knowing this, this is a fact, it's true about you, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. This is Paul's image. You were a slave. When you were in Adam, you were a slave. But what happens when a slave dies? There is no necessary obligation to the master any longer, forever. That relationship is broken. For he who has died is freed from sin. Let's unpack this. Knowing this, Paul says, that our old self or our old man was crucified with him. That old man is not a part of you before you knew Jesus. It's not your sin nature. It is your identification with Adam and Adam's realm. And it's who you were, all of you, before you believed in Jesus Christ. You were dead in sin. You were dead in Adam. You were a slave to that realm. Okay? That necessary bond to Adam and his realm was completely broken, he says, when you were crucified with Jesus Christ. The purpose of that was so that your body of sin might be rendered ineffective or rendered powerless. That is, so that your physical body, through which you interact with the world, that physical body only could listen to one master when you were in Adam. And as a result, it was a tool of sin. And it didn't have a choice to be righteous and to make righteous decisions because it was in the realm of Adam. That body of sin would be rendered powerless, and as he'll talk about in chapter 8, could actually become a tool of righteousness and now not listen to the voice of of sin and temptation, but instead listen to the voice of the spirit so that the body of sin, the body that was enslaved just to sin, could only respond to sin, might be uh, rendered powerless. Why? So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Jesus Christ died, not just to rescue you from sin's penalty, which is separation, as we talked about last week, but also to rescue all of us from the power of sin in our lives. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in this body, in this physical flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, and he gave himself up for me. So Paul will say, we are united then with Christ's death, but also with Christ's resurrection life. Look with me in chapter 6 and verse 5. It says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Verse 8, 
Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. The death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. And if you are in Christ by faith, then you have died to sin once and for all. Once and for all. It is not necessary for you to respond to sin and temptation. Because the bond has been broken. And instead, as Paul says, you have the hope of resurrection life. There's a future implication to that. What that means is someday you will receive a resurrection body exactly like the resurrection body of Jesus Christ. Paul talks about that in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, and 1 Corinthians 15. For many verses, it is a body that is imperishable. It is a body that cannot decay. It is a body that is not susceptible to disease. It is a body that no longer has that sin nature so that we will no longer respond to sin. We will not. It's a body that will only respond to the voice of the Spirit. That is the great hope. And we will live in that spiritual glorified body forever. Because we share in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the great hope that we have as believers in Christ. But Paul goes on, he says, there is also hope now. Verse 5. Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. Why? So that we too might walk in newness of life. In other words, so that uh, right now, we would begin to live as citizens of this new realm because we have in fact been transferred out of the realm of Adam and sin and death and slavery and the law into the realm of Christ and grace and life and the spirit. Therefore, we can say no to sin and we can say yes to the spirit. It's a fact. Maybe this morning you're saying, Brian, man, that's... Man, that's a great preaching, but I don't feel dead to sin, and I don't feel alive to Christ. Uh, Paul gives four application points. He laces them throughout the chapter that help us move forward. How do we experience this? His first is an imperative, and that is no. Chapter 6, verse 3. Paul says, or do you not know? That all of us have been baptized, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. He says, some of you in Rome, you may have never heard this before. Paul hadn't been to Rome before. He said, you may not know this. I'm going to teach this to you for the first time. Or maybe you know it, but you don't remember it. I'm going to remind you. And maybe there are some of you this morning who've never heard this this morning. You don't, you don't know. That there's just a fact that's true about you, whether you feel it or not. You are dead to sin. Sin isn't dead to you. But you are dead to sin. That necessary domination of sin in your life has been broken. It's a fact. Paul says, know it. And his second exhortation is this. Consider it to be true or reckon it so because it is so. Verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ because Christ has died to sin once and for all. And he is alive to God, and you are in him, therefore, consider it so. Or, in other words, he'll say, believe it to be true, because it is true. Have you ever had dental work done? 
You know, the, the kind that's potentially painful. So you go in and they shoot your mouth, they stick needles in your mouth first, right? Which is usually the worst part. Uh, you don't feel the rest after that. But the needles going in, oh, that's very bad. That hurts a lot, right? But you're so glad because you don't, you don't feel the rest of it. And you finish the whole procedure, drilling and smoke coming out of your mouth and all that, you know, and you finish the procedure and you haven't felt any pain yet. As you walk out, your brain says, half of your face is falling off of your skull. You should check, right? You do. So you get into the car. What's the first thing you do? You look in the mirror to see, is half of my face actually falling off? Because it feels like it is. And the mirror says, no, you know, it's not. It's, it's a little puffy, but your face is still attached to your skull. And so you go, okay. And you put it back and you begin driving. You go, really? You know, and you check again. Yeah, okay, it's still on there. But it doesn't feel like it's on my skull any longer. It feels like it's falling off. But the mirror says, no, this is the truth, Right? Romans 6 is the mirror. It's saying, look at the mirror. You are dead to sin, but alive to Christ. Even when it doesn't feel as if it's so. And the first step for some of you may be, know it. You haven't heard it before. Know this is true now. Believe it. Third, he's going to say, reject sin's domination of your life. Why? Because you can. And because it's destructive when you allow yourself to be a slave to sin. Verse 12, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. In other words, every time that we sin, it's because we have chosen to let sin dominate our lives. We do choose it. Even if it doesn't feel as if we're choosing it, we are choosing it. And so Paul says, you're now free. You're not slaves. Get up and walk off the land because you're not slaves any longer. How? Paul, how do we do that? We're going to talk about that next week. Okay? And then we're going to talk about it throughout the rest of chapters 7 and 8. And then we're going to talk about it again in chapters 12 through 16, how it works in our community. And then you're going to spend the rest of your life talking with other believers and reading the word and processing, how do I actually live this out in my life? In other words, uh, this morning's sermon is not the final word. And this morning's sermon is not a silver bullet by which magically everything changes. But this morning is a starting point. Maybe this morning you need to know this is true, or or maybe this morning this is not true yet of you, and you need to believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins. And that he was raised up for you. Because when you believe, God removes that debt of sin. He places you into Christ, and you will forever be in right relationship with God. And maybe this morning you need to believe. Or maybe this morning you need to understand that this is true already of you and you need to begin to step out in faith. And my challenge for you uh, throughout the Christmas break, here's the application point. I'll repeat it again next week. I want you to read chapter six through eight throughout the whole break. And I want you to meditate upon it. I want you to memorize uh, portions of it. Maybe all of chapter six. Uh, This week, I challenge you to memorize verses four through seven of chapter six. And I want you to, to meditate upon it. This is true of you. You are dead to sin, but alive to God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that each of us would understand this is true, that we would believe it, and that we would step out in faith. I pray, Father, that we would begin to see greater victory. I pray that we would be dissatisfied with where we are in terms of our reflection of the nature of Christ and our intimacy with you. And I pray, Father, that as we meditate on Romans 6, Romans 7, and Romans 8, 
that you would transform our thinking and you would transform our practice. And I pray, Father, for each and every one of us individually and for this body of believers that we would more and more and more reflect the righteousness of God that we have received through Jesus Christ. It is in his precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.